If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the 1950s and 60s, as African countries were gaining their independence from European empires, a new power moved in. In her book, White Malice, the historian Susan Williams explores the CIA's activities on the continent, focusing in particular on the campaigns against Congo's Patrice Lumumba and Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah. She spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. And just a heads up that due to some issues with the recording, Susan re-recorded one section of the interview for us. That's why one question will sound slightly different to the rest. Your book focuses on a period 60 years ago when many African countries had either attained or were battling to attain independence. I wonder if you could briefly explain what the situation was in the continent in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Well, in 1958, there were only eight independent nations in on the continent of Africa. Um, and one can see what a dramatic process of, of change was going on when one bears in mind that in 1960, 60, 17 new territories um, on the African continent joined the United Nations. It was a time of of great hope, great change and um, vision for the future. And your book centres on two nations in particular, uh, which is Ghana and Congo, as it was then called. What is the particular significance of these countries? Well, I wonder if I could just explain how the writing of the book came about. Of course. Because I never planned, in fact, to write about the CIA and its operations on the African continent during this period. My plan was to write a book about the relationship between Kwame Nkrumah, the first democratically elected um, prime minister and then president of Ghana, and Patrice Lumumba, the first democratically elected prime minister of the Congo, which of course had been um, ruled by Belgium until um, 1960, until in fact the 30th of June 1960. And these two men um, were brilliant, remarkable, visionary men. And their relationship um, was of great importance politically for um, the way forward in terms of the Pan-Africanist vision. And it was also an interesting relationship in terms of the way that Lumumba turned to Nkrumah as a kind of father figure or uncle figure, because he was an older man, to give him the um, guidance he needed. And I've admired these two African leaders so much for many years, and I thought it would be um, a great joy and privilege to write a book about their relationship. But when I was writing the chapter about the time when they met, which was a conference called Hands Off Africa, which was held in Accra in Ghana in December 1958, 
Um, was a, this was a meeting of Pan-Africanist freedom fighters from across the continent um, where they came together to share in their hopes and their dreams for the future. It was an extraordinary meeting. It really was. And as I say, Nkrumah and Lumumba met at this meeting. And after the meeting, uh, Lumumba um, went back to the Congo um, full of, of his dream of ending um, the occupation of the Congo um, by Belgium. So this was a very, very important meeting by these two extraordinary men. It was also a very important meeting for the transformation of Africa. So I wrote about, um, I wrote a chapter about this meeting. It was very exciting. Um, the meeting ended with an, on a note of euphoria, and I, in fact, ended writing the chapter on a note of euphoria. And then I came across some suspicious circumstances and I discovered that um, as far as Nkrumah's belief was that Lumumba's interpreter had in fact been CIA. Then I came across more information about this meeting that seemed rather strange, um, that um, an American um, journalist was found underneath the stage where a lot of meetings were held with recording equipment. He was found by the police. And bit by bit, I discovered that, in fact, the CIA were at the meeting as well um, in various forms. And this challenged my plan for writing the book. I felt I couldn't ignore what I was finding, especially since this hasn't really been seen before. And you briefly in that last answer mentioned pan-Africanism. I wonder if you could just explain a little more to our listeners what that philosophy was about. Yes, indeed, I could, I'd be very um, happy to do that. Kwame Nkrumah at the independence of Ghana in 1957 spoke very clearly about the importance of pan-Africanism for Africa in the way forward. And he said um, in a speech, our independence is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. He envisaged a United States of Africa, in a sense modelled on the United States of America, a unity where the different countries of the African continent would work to support each other. So you said earlier that there were CIA, a CIA presence at this 1958 meeting. What were the CIA doing there? What, what were their goals to, by attending this meeting? Well, I think largely their goals in attending the meeting were hmm, espionage, intelligence, finding out what was going on, finding out who the important people um, in the freedom movements of the continent were, what they were saying, what they were doing, what um, contacts they were making, what kind of, of alliances were being developed. But having seen the role of the CIA at the, this Hands Off Africa meeting, um, I started to see the CIA in many other forms, in many other places. It was as if every time I picked up a rock, I saw the shadow of the CIA. Um, I would say all the way from you know, the most remote outpost in the Congo, in Angola, all the way to the UN in Manhattan. It's a very thick web of secret covert operations including hired killers, non-official agents, official agents, bribery uh, involving thick brown paper bags and men who were described as satchel carriers, um, the secret creation of cultural organisations, the infiltration of trade unions, airlines were involved, the delivery of 
fighter jets, Fuga fighter jets by the CIA to Katanga, which was a province in the Congo that had broken away from the Congo as a whole. On the one hand, the um, breakaway um, secession of Katanga from the Congo overall was not recognized by the US, not officially recognized by the US, but at the same time, these fighter jets were secretly delivered by the CIA. And some of the um, moments that I saw of the infiltration of the CIA were very painful. For example, Patrice Lumumba went to a conference in Nigeria in 1959 about governance, and he was full of enthusiasm um, and hope for the future. And in fact, this meeting was um, organized and sponsored by the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was a CIA front. And it's almost painful that um, Lumumba declared at the end of his um, paper, the paper he gave at this conference, that um, he was concerned that many intellectuals were being persuaded away from the cause of the struggle for justice. And he hoped that the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was supporting this conference, would bear this in mind and do what it could to prevent that from happening. And that's a horrible irony because he was, in fact, being funded to give this paper by the CIA. And there are other painful moments like that. Um, for example, in 1960, after independence in Leopoldville, which is, of course, now Kinshasa, there was a meeting of independent African states at which Lumumba gave the um, introductory um, welcoming speech. And outside this conference, there was a demonstration against Lumumba, a very active, um, loud demonstration with placards. This demonstration was recorded on newsreels, which went round the world giving um, people the impression that there was a lot of opposition to Lumumba um, and influencing um, people's opinion of, the, of this democratically elected leader. But that demonstration had been inspired and paid for by the CIA. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Vice President Nixon was representing the US at these celebrations and he went up to someone and slapped him on the back and said, how does it feel to be free? And the person he did this to turned around and said to him, I don't know, sir, I'm from Alabama. So why was the CIA seeking to challenge or, or bring down Lumumba? What was, what was America's problem with him? It's very often assumed that the primary concern of the US in the Congo, for example, and in Ghana, Angola, and the countries around, was in terms of the Cold War and um, to keep the Soviets out of those important parts of Africa. And it is clear that one of the um, important reasons for America's interest in the Congo was a mine called Shinkalobwe, which produced the uranium that was used in the Manhattan Project during World War II to um, build the atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan um, in 1945, um, a terribly tragic event. 
And there's nowhere else in the world that um, produces, um, no other mine that produces such rich, powerful uranium. And at the time of the independence of the Congo, the Belgian company that owned it and the US government put out the message that the mine had been exhausted, it had been sealed over, um, and was of no interest anymore. But this really wasn't true. And um, in fact, there was still um, plenty of uranium there and discussions were going on between um, the Belgian company that owned the mine and the US government about buying um, some stocks that were overground. So the US government was very concerned that the Soviets would not get access to this to this mine and maybe get access to this hugely important uranium. But I think it wasn't just that they were concerned about the Soviet Union getting access to the mine. There was also great discomfort about the idea of a black majority government being in charge of that mine and being in control of it. It's evident from documentation that this um, caused um, concern um, among very senior people in the US government. And in fact, during a meeting that Lumumba had in the US with some businessmen in August 1960, he, he was asked what he would do with the um, uranium that um, was mined in, in Katanga, now that the Congo was independent. And Lumumba answered that the uranium no longer belonged to Belgium, it now belonged to the Congo, and the Congo would make its decisions about what it was going to do um, with this uranium. And in fact, Lumumba was um, scheduled to meet with President Eisenhower in Washington, D.C., shortly after this meeting. And then um, it emerges that um, Eisenhower decided he'd, he no longer wanted to meet with Lumumba, and he phoned one of Lumumba's advisors and said he was not going to meet with um, the Congolese prime minister. He was going to go and play golf instead. For the most part, we tend to look at the 20th century after the Second World War in terms of, we describe it in terms of it being dominated by the Cold War. But the research I did for this book revealed to me in a very powerful way that this is, that is a very limited way of describing um, the 20th century. And from the point of view of Nkrumah and Lumumba and other African freedom fighters um, in the 20th century. The struggle was not so much between the Soviet Union and the US, between the superpowers, but a struggle against racism and white supremacy. And this was the evil that really had to be fought against and overcome. And this understanding very much inspired the African-American community in the US and Martin Luther King was um, a guest at the um, independent celebrations of Ghana. And he was very powerfully moved by um, what he saw, by the, the fact that the people of Ghana were now free from British rule. And he said, 
we know what you're going through. We've experienced the same agony, the same suffering, the same pain. And he also said, um, following the independent celebrations of Ghana, that segregation in America and colonialism in Africa are based on the same thing, white supremacy and contempt for life. And there's a meeting at the um, independent celebrations in Accra, which in in a way bring this home. Vice President Nixon was representing the US at these celebrations. And he went up to someone and slapped him on the back and said, how does it feel to be free? And the person he did this to turned around and said to him, I don't know, sir. I'm from Alabama. And I think that does exemplify the complexity of this situation. I think it also explains why Nkrumah was seen as such a source of inspiration for the African-American community in the US. And when Nkrumah visited Chicago in 1958, the route all the way from the airport to the city was lined with African-Americans who were there to greet him, welcome him, and many of the more elderly people were weeping. Which leads me also to note something that's very shocking and very instructive. In 1958, the year of the Hands Off Africa conference that was held in Accra, which was um, celebrating the possibility of freedom from colonial rule and equality for all. In that same year, a meeting was held in Brussels um, called Expo 58, the World's Fair. 600 people were brought from the Congo by the Belgian government to be displayed as exhibits in a fenced off, a large fenced off area. They were put in straw huts and they were made to do crafts, effectively a human zoo. And it's extraordinary to think that these two important meetings of people were taking place in the same year that were so different. So how far at this point did US interests align with those of the colonial and former colonial powers? Well, Nkrumah himself described what was going on, described neocolonization, if you like, after the independence of Ghana and the subsequent um, African territories that became independent as the colonialists going out through the front door of a house with their baggage and then the CIA and other US um, interests coming um, into the back of the house, secretly climbing over the walls and through the windows. And he conceived of the role of the European powers after independence, um, I think as junior part, the junior partners to the US. They were still involved and um, participating in the, um, the role of big business, in the African continent. But arguably, as the junior partner, it was really the US who that was in charge that was deciding what was going to be happening. And they didn't always tell their um, European allies what they were up to and what their plans were. So, um, but that doesn't mean that, for example, the British government and the British intelligence services didn't actively take part in some of the um, events that caused harm in Ghana and the Congo. In the case of the Congo, we see the role of Daphne Park, 
who was the um, MI6 representative who worked closely with Larry Devlin, who was the CIA chief of station. They worked very closely together, but whatever was going on was being led by Devlin and the multitude of other CIA non-official agents, official agents and assets and so on that were um, in the Congo. Park played a, a minimal role. One of the most unlikable people in my book, as from my point of view, is someone called General Henry Templer Alexander, who was the chief of staff of the Ghanaian army. When Ghana um, became independent, it inherited an army run by British officers. And these had divided loyalties, and one of them was Alexander. And when the UN sent contingents of soldiers and um, peacekeepers and um, other kinds of assistance to the Congo after the crisis started there um, in 1960. It was General Alexander who led Ghana's UN contingent. And while he was in the Congo, he worked very closely with the US. Not in fact with the UK. He was spending all his time hanging out with the US ambassador, not the UK ambassador. By doing this, he was betraying the trust of Nkrumah and of Ghana and, of course, of the UN and the Congo. Um, And it is possible to see that Alexander had a hand in the persecution of Lumumba, and he also had links to the overthrow of um, President Nkrumah in 1966, when Nkrumah was overthrown in in a CIA-backed plot called Operation Cold Chop. So, yeah, coming on to the the overthrow of both of these leaders. So what's the role of the CIA in Lumumba's overthrow in Congo? Well, um, a Senate committee of investigation in 1975 in the US um, came to the conclusion that, yes, it was the case that the US had wanted... um, and planned the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, but that, in fact, they had not been successful and they could not be held responsible for the killing of Lumumba. However, a um, parliamentary committee set up in Belgium in 2000 um, questioned this and challenged it and they said that as far as they could see, the CIA had played a much larger role than this Senate um, Committee of Investigation had decided in 1975. And I have found evidence in recently released documentation that that this certainly is the case, that the US can be seen to have been much more closely involved in the series of events that led to Lumumba's assassination in January 1961. And much of this material has been released in 2017 to 2018 under the provisions of the John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, And some very important material, very instructive material has been released, which has told us a lot more about what the CIA was up to. 
So, so Lumumba was overthrown and then, and then later, as you say, assassinated. So when we're talking about a CIA involvement, we're not saying the CIA, a CIA operative actually pulled the trigger, but that they potentially got him in the position whereby he was likely to be assassinated. Is that, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the most disturbing themes for me of the book was the disconnect between the between US rhetoric as the champion of democracy and the reality. Because on the one hand, the US presented itself um, and presents itself as, um, yes, the champion of democracy. And But at the same time, if you look at the Congo in 1960, after the, the joy of independence, which the, the people of the Congo had just worked so hard for and dreamed of, within 10 weeks of independence, the CIA had orchestrated a coup which overthrew the democratically elected um, leader and prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, and his government, and had inserted Mobutu into power. And it's striking that um, a very senior official in the CIA, Dick Bissell, wrote in a memoir in the 1990s that he was aware of the criticism of the CIA of what it had done in the 1950s and 1960s. But, he said, he was convinced that the agency had acted in the government's best interests in attempting to preserve the highly desired principle of democracy, which leads one one to ask, whose democracy? Evidently not the democracy of the Congo. And how far can we say that the CIA was reflecting the will of the US government and ultimately the, the president? I mean, is it possible that CIA agents had gone rogue to some extent? No, there is a very clear trail all the way up to President Eisenhower. And um, there are the re- the records of National Security um, Council meetings, which um, make this absolutely clear that Eisenhower knew what the plan was, and he backed that plan. Just coming back to the topic of racism again, um, reading some of the um, minutes of those meetings uh, is is quite disturbing because um, some things are said which I really wouldn't like to repeat and said by very senior officials and advisors, but not challenged not challenged, for example, by um, President Eisenhower. You mentioned that in Ghana in 1966, a coup orchestrated by the CIA overthrew Nkrumah. Did he have any warning of this threat from the US? That's an important question, because it was not simply a case of countries in Africa being at the mercy of America's foreign intelligence service. Under Nkrumah, Ghana had its own intelligence services. One strand infiltrated colonised territories in Africa to support freedom fighters. Another strand blew open a plot involving the CIA to overthrow Nkrumah in 1961. It's a bizarre story. An American businessman in Accra, who may have been a CIA agent, telephoned New York and gave details of the conspiracy, all the details. But the telephone line was being tapped by Ghanaian intelligence. The plot was immediately discovered and stopped. So we've talked a lot about the Congo and Ghana, but did similar CIA actions take place elsewhere in Africa? Oh, absolutely they did. And one of the concerns that many people have in um, 
different parts of Africa is that they don't actually know what happened because the records of their history are kept in, the official records are kept in the US, in the UK, France, Belgium, Portugal, and so on. And as the Congolese historian, um, Georges Nzongola Antalaja, has argued very powerfully, in order to understand the present, we need to know the past and in order as a way of building the future. But it's very difficult to do that when the records of the past are being kept from us. And I referred to the documentation that's been released um, under the John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act of 1992, which has recently been, uh, have recently been released. And they're very exciting and they've really pushed things forward. But at the same time, many files are so heavily redacted that there's hardly anything on the pages. And I've, in fact, um, printed numbers of files thinking, oh, my goodness, there are gonna, I'm going to have hundreds of pages about a particular agent. And then when I see that the pages I printed, most of them have either nothing on or one or two words. And if one thinks, for example, about the um, MKUltra, which was the um, drug mind control program that was organized by the CIA in the 20th century, we know a lot of what that involved. But there was a program called MK Delta, which was MKUltra for overseas. And those records are almost entirely missing. There are a few references to MK Delta. That's how we know that it existed. But that, that's it. There's nothing more that we can find at this point in time. And also many of the testimonies of, of, of senior people working for the CIA, for example, of the chemist Gottlieb who ran MKUltra, they are incomplete or missing. So there's still so much material that um, we need to get hold of in order to really to start to understand what happened. So having written this book, which centres so much on these two men, what is your opinion now on Nkrumah and Lumumba? Well, I have even greater respect for Nkrumah and Lumumba now than I did before I started the work. Nkrumah, even after he had been overthrown, in 1966 and was living in exile he didn't give up and to and he said that we have gone one step backwards we must take two steps forward and in fact in Accra um, there's a statue um, of Nkrumah with his hand his arm raised showing the way forward which is terribly moving many people have seen in the west to have um, a view of Nkrumah as a paranoiac because he was concerned about threats on his life. But in fact, he wasn't paranoid at all. He was sensible and realistic. There were so many attempts on his life. And he, he, he witnessed other people being killed in an attempt to kill him. And in one, in one case, um, children were killed, which he found extremely distressing. So he wasn't paranoid at all. He was very sensible. And he was an extraordinary um, man, um, great sense of humour, very disciplined, teetotal. Um, Lumumba um, is, has also become um, 
seen by people in the West in a way that is just false and wrong. For example, um, he's seen as irrational. And one um, senior American official said, he's just not a rational being. That's the kind of idea, I think, that people still um, feel about Lumumba. But it's absolutely not the case at all. He wasn't, he was by no means irrational. He was very sensible, very, very rational and brilliant. I mean, both I think that both these men were so clever and so brilliant. And um, I would say that Lumumba's chief problem was that he was too trusting. He, he believed that people were fundamentally good and he trusted Mobutu, um, who's been described as his own Judas. That was Susan Williams. White Malice, The CIA and the Neocolonization of Africa is out now, published by Hearst. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Ranulph Fiennes will be telling the story of fellow polar explorer Ernest Shackleton. Are you enjoying the History Extra podcast and want to delve a bit deeper into history? Why not take out a subscription for BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine, and receive a brand new book of your choice worth £25. Choose from either Powers and Thrones by Dan Jones, a signed edition, The Anglo-Saxons by Mark Morris, Crown and Scepter by Tracy Borman, or Soldiers by Max Hastings. Your subscription includes delivery of every issue right to your door. Receive all of this for just £22.45 every six issues. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash myhistorybook. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. See our website for further details. Overseas subscription prices are available online. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.